0: 1 Kings 22, and starting from verse 1. Micaiah prophecies against Ahab. For three years, there there was no war between Aram and Israel. but In the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel has said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek. The counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canaan, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth-Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to them, Look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. And when he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, and the Lord said, "These people have no master; let each one go home in peace." The king of Israel said to the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, "Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad?" Micaiah continued, "Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing round him." On his right and on his left and the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another suggested that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Canana went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when you asked him from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in the inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says, Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah, Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people.
1: I thought to myself this morning, there's a lot of big words in this passage, who would be up for that? And, <laughs> and it was Ian. Thank you, Ian. Father, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. There is none like you. So may we have ears to hear and a heart which is open for your glory, Father. In the name of Christ, Amen. Thank you, Ian. What have we decided? It's Micaiah. Micaiah, it's Micaiah. That's that's what we're going for. My best Glaswegian accent, the prophet of the Lord, is Micaiah. When I open up my Bible, so I see Ian had his phone. I I like the old paper one, um, and I've got various of them. But when I open up uh, my Bible, through experience, I know whether I'm reading... um, a gospel passage, whether I'm reading a prophecy, a psalm, or an epistle, I've discovered that through time that I don't expect the, the great prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, to give me f- fine detail of the history of Israel, certainly not as much as I would expect the books of Kings or Chronicles to do, and that's through experience as I open up the Scripture. I know that when I read a psalm, that there's a form of poem and song that will help me understand what the psalmist is is getting at about the life of Israel and their relationship with God and how they see the world around about them. And when I read the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the 1 Corinthians, I know that I'm listening to one side of a two-sided conversation. And one of the, the most powerful and complex features of the Bible, yeah, I'm going to go there, is that it's made up of various genres, various types of, of things. We've got narrative, which is story, there's poetry, there's wisdom, there's prophecy in their gospels, epistles, epistles and apocalyptic writing. Do you know that there's approximately 43%? Of the Bible is historical story. And somehow God has given his authority to this collection of 66 books. You know, the most famous book, the most read book, still the top bestseller. I think they take it off the top bestseller because it's always the top best seller. And but God has given his authority to this collection of 66 books. We see it in Pitlockery Baptist Church. As an authoritative book Unlike any other And so the question I want to spend a wee bit of time Exploring this morning is What does it mean for the Bible to have authority What is it And how can the Bible be authoritative For my life And for our life and practice If I go back this is part of a series Called Foundations This is working really well today thank you And uh, so last week we looked at The centrality of the, the gospel and this week we're looking at authority in the Bible. And here's other things. Worship, discipleship, community, mission, ministry, future hope. Because we realize that there are so many. What was that it says last week? The, the, Lois and Steve Brown, who've been in the church family for maybe 15 months. We consider them as newbies. But a fifth of the people who are worshiping adults in this church have came since then. So there's a lot of newbies, and there's a lot of us that come from Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church, Baptist Church, Pentecostal Church, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> swinging for the chandeliers and all that, and, and then there's those of it that come from free church, no church, from a Catholic background. So as we, as a leadership team, and as we, as a church, ask that question, what, what has God settled us here for? What are we all about? What is foundational for our life together? That's what we're looking at. And so we've put together these eight weeks, and there may be more. I know in our small group this week, discussion was fantastic, and there was other things being raised that possibly we could look at as being something that's foundational and that we should all know. So that's it. So we're going to look at the authority. Um, Oh, have done that there? Oh, now it's getting too gummy. Come on, go back. Too Too fast. If it changes, just say it's went too far forward because I've got nothing up there. I need to keep looking back. What I'm not going to do today is this. I'm not going to fire lots of proof texts, you know, and say, submit. I'm not going to do that. Because you, I think rightly so, would say you're being authoritarian there. That's a wee bit much. And you might say that politely. You would tell me where to go or where to get off. So I'm not going to do that. But I think... Many people, certainly our generation, has a problem with authority. And so I want to look at authority and what it is and put it in context. In different settings, we use uh, authority, we think of authority differently here as we would in our work, as we would in the the home. For instance, we would say of a a great footballer that he stamped his authority on the game. Okay, and then maybe other sports, but that's the only real sport that I really am interested in. So that's the context I'm putting in. But we'd see a great footballer. The only he put he stamped his authority in the game. Someone comes into a classroom and says, "Who is in charge?" You would think the teacher. Hopefully, they wouldn't point to the bully in the class, but you would think the teacher or the classroom assistant. Group of people go out for a meal. It might be an odd question for someone to come in and say who's in charge when it's just a group of friends out for a meal. That, how does that work? Is that a strange question to ask? It is until it comes to paying the bill at the end. Then if, when we had our curry nights, Ian Meyer, who was a former treasurer, was always in charge of collecting the money. But that, so you see, that question of who's in charge or who's authority in different contexts has got different ways of being used. You walk into a courtroom, You say, who's in charge? Who's authority? I think quite clearly you would know. It would have a clear meaning. It would have a clear understanding that the judge or the sheriff is in charge. And I don't know. So there you are. So within the church, that question has been asked a lot. Still is being asked. You're a leader, but you're not a servant leader. Well, who's in charge? Is it the church meeting? It's not a democracy. There's lots of questions of where does authority come from? And you need to really dig down uh, to find the answer to that at times how are things to be organized in the church what are the boundaries of acceptable or allowable behavior and doctrine what's acceptable in in putlockery baptist when it comes to the gifts of the holy spirit there'd be some newbies who wouldn't know how do we support the ministries that happens in Putlockery Baptist I found out two weeks ago that our small group that a newbie who'd been here for about a year didn't know that our finances didn't come from a big central reservation that it's us we support the ministry within the church by tithing and more into the general frontier so all of these questions ask get asked within the church as well And historically, the question of authority in the church has been been debated around three things. Scripture, tradition, and reason. Or, put another way, the Bible, the Pope, or the scholar. Traditionally, in the history of the church, that was a great big debate. And then more recently, put how many years on that you want, a fourth has risen up. To be quite a strong player in that question of where is the authority in the church. And that fourth uh, person in that, or fourth thing in that is our feelings. Our emotions rival scripture, tradition and reason. So basically, the meaning or the source of authority varies considerably. According to the context in which the debate is happening. But it's good to raise it right away. And it's good to put that up so you get to read it time and time and time again. We believe as a church family that God has the authority. All authority belongs to God. No one else. He's got no rivals. Even scripture does not rival God and his authority. And we're going to come to all of that. So I want you to hear loud and clear that all authority belongs to God. Let me throw some scriptures up here. Genesis 1 verse 1, you know it well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said this, God said that. By his authority, by his say, it came into being. God has all authority. In the Old Testament, God calls Abraham and Abraham goes. And throughout the history of Israel, we see great events like the exodus and the exile and the return. And all of these things happen by God's authority. God sends them out so that they may come back. And God hears the cry and he brings them back. All of that. God never says oops. He's never caught unaware. There is a plan and God has authority in all of that. In the New Testament, we discover that, that that ultimate authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 28:19, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that authority he passed on to the apostles. A motley crew, but he did. He called them and gave them authority. For instance when writing to the church at Thessalonica concerning how they were to live and how they were to to please God, Paul wrote these words. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, wrote these words. For do you know what instructions we gave you? Who are you to give us instructions? By the authority of the Lord Jesus. Because he was set aside by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. As Peter and the others were set aside to be apostles to the Jews. So when Paul spoke, it was by the authority of the Lord. And it's interesting at time in scripture, you'll see every now and then Paul says, It is I that says this, not the Lord reasons why he says that but it's interesting there are occasions he says it's i that say this and not the lord but on the whole when paul spoke when peter spoke when james spoke when john spoke it was by the authority that was bestowed upon them by jesus why jesus because all authority in heaven and the earth has been given to jesus by the father this is my son whom i love and i'm well pleased listen do whatever he says i know it's a paraphrase but that's in effect what that means so how does this happen? How does God extend and exercise his authority? By what means? By his Holy Spirit. God's authority is to do by his Spirit, by his presence. He is active by his Spirit. And since Pentecost, the body of Christ, us, we have been given authority to work within God's world, as his accredited agents. Paul again, to the church at Corinth, wrote these words. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, God's plan. Judgment, redemption. Not counting people's sins against them. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Because Jesus paid it all. And he committed to us, the church, the the message of reconciliation. What does that mean? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's why when I hear, and I heard another story this week, of someone who's a churchgoer, and because they're an active churchgoer all the time, the, minister's appro- the minister approaches him, and he's an active churchgoer. The minister approaches him and says, would you be an elder of the church? And the person thinks that's a, a great thing, definitely. And he becomes an elder. But you find out that they do not know Jesus, let alone the gospel. But because of where they were, because the need within the church, they were set aside to be an elder. And yet he or she is not born again, born of the Spirit. It may have been a word that was used to slag people. Oh, you're a Bible basher. You're born again. Yeah, I'm born again. I'm born of the Spirit. I'm no longer dead to to God, but alive in Christ. And because of the Holy Spirit's activity, that He dwells among us, that He tabernacles, that He tents with us, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. But without the Spirit, there is no authority. Without the leading of God... It's just man-made plans, and it all looks good. So from an exceedingly quick survey, I think we have to say that authority, according to the Bible, is, v- is vested by God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what is God doing with this authority? And this is before we get to 1 Kings 22, but I'm getting there. But it's important for all sorts of reasons. Remember at the beginning how everything was good? In fact, remember at the beginning when God says it was very good? Genesis, that story, that narrative of creation and our relationship and how God calls people out. But at the beginning, it was very good. It was as it was meant to be. But everything got messed up extremely quickly. Adam and Eve thought that they were the authority in their life. Yes, they responded to an idea. Did God really say that? And Eve thought about it. And so eventually she became the centre and Adam became the centre of the life. The authority, we will decide. And sin entered the world but it turns out that God already had a plan in place. He already had a plan in place to respond to to that rebellion, to respond to that question about his authority as the creator, sustainer, and giver of life. Again, God never says oops. God is never taken by surprise. And we see a hint of that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in a dialogue between God and the serpent, the evil one, the deceiver, the accuser, And God says this in Genesis chapter 3, 15, and I will put enmity, so a fight, between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring, between your kingdom, between everything that you want to do, and hers. He will crush your head. And this is where commentators believe this is the first point where the gospel is hinted at. He will crush your head. On the cross, Jesus will defeat the powers of death and Hades and sin. And you will strike his heel. You will think that you've struck him at a mortal blow by hanging him on the cross. But it will be just like striking his heel. But he will crush your head. And we celebrate in this church that Jesus paid it all. When we have communion, it is not Holy Mass. We do not believe that we have to uh, re-crucify Jesus as a strict Catholic Orthodox view would be. But that Jesus has done it all at the cross. We don't believe in purgatory. Don't believe we have to go and pay for our sins. Because we believe Jesus paid it all. Fully, completely, it is finished, done. We believe that here. We celebrate that here. And it's a huge comfort for our future hope. So, what is God doing with his authority? And this is, if, if there's anything I have to say, this is very important to pick up. I've been hinting at it, but this is very important. God has been organising the world through Jesus. You may want to put reorganising, but I'll just say organising. And he's been doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus went into, um, Jesus was baptised by John, went to the desert, was tempted by the evil one. Um, but before that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came down on him for ministry. And so God's been organizing the world through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is judging and remaking his world. And may his kingdom come and his will be done. For God's authority in the Bible is is designed, as all of God's authority is designed, to do a few things: to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world, in order to set people free, back to liberty. His desire is to see us walk in harmony with him, to know him. Even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil to know him. Because we're liberated, we trust in our future hope in Jesus. And he's with us and he's not abandoned us. And he will uh, judge and he will um, change us from one glory to another glory to become like Jesus. And therefore fully set free To be fully human. So when we use the shorthand phrase, the authority of scripture, what we ought to mean or the goal of what we have in mind should be this, that God is organizing the world through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify the Father. All other use of the Bible as an authority is about power plays and about keeping people in boxes. So when people come and say and open up the scripture and go to the, the, the proof texts, To get us to do something, we need to be careful that the person who is doing that is not just trying to put us into a box. That the person that's doing that, their motive is about control. Whereas we know that when, by the Holy Spirit and through holy people who are working in line with the Spirit, in line with God's plans, come and show us the sin in our life, come and and gently correct us because they're doing it with a loving heart, then we respond. It's much easier than than someone sitting in there. Their, their, their soapbox pointing down at you as if they were a few feet closer to Jesus by being on that soapbox we need to be careful that we don't open this this to control people but open the, this up to show people this is what the Bible says if you don't know Jesus then you're not part of his family and if you don't know Jesus then your father is the father of lies and if you don't know Jesus and have submitted your life to him, ask for forgiveness, been born of the Spirit, then you're part of the kingdom of this world, which is a kingdom of darkness. And God is coming to judge all that which stands against his authority. Why? Because he is some cosmic, child-abusing, angry God. No, because he is, from his character, the God of love and the God of justice and the God of mercy. That's who he is. So forgive me if I upset you by saying I'm part of the kingdom of darkness or making you think that or, or surely I'm a good person. I'm simply opening up scripture not to condemn but to hopefully open up scripture and say this is what the Bible says. This comes from the words of Jesus. God's desire is to reorganize our lives individually and collectively in line with his kingdom authority that he is sovereign and that we are not by his spirit through his word through his chosen agents the church so that we may have life in all of its fullness and someone prayed earlier on about light and only by doing that will we be light we can be a false light that will lead people to their destruction But if the life of Jesus is fully shining out because we desire him more than life itself, others will be attracted to that. And it will not be death, it will be life. Now we come to 1 Kings 22, and I'm going to be relatively short on this. What did we decide on Isaiah, Micaiah? Micaiah, in 1 Kings 22 I'm not going to flick through just we've read it and you've got the gist of the story and I want to pick out something very important from. I think anyway. Time and again in the Bible we see that God exercises his authority through chosen agents. He, rises, he raises them up, he, he sends them for a purpose. And he equips them through the authority of his Holy Spirit, his presence with us. Now, God could have, if he wanted to, suddenly appeared like the Jenny out of the lamp. God could have, if he wanted, to, clicked his fingers and removed all opposition. But because God desires to work in space and time, he didn't do that. God wants us to know him, to see him, to feel him. And so he isn't this concept but we see him most fully in the person of Jesus Christ and we see him through his spirit, through his chosen agents, the church. That's why we get the patriarchs. That's why we get the prophets. That's why we get the judges. That's why we get the psalmists, and that's why eventually we get Jesus who's the climax of that story of God revealing himself. But in 1 Kings 22, Micaiah, the son of Imala, stands up against the wicked king Ahab. And the false prophets of Israel were saying to Ahab, go up against Ramoth Gilead and fight and you will win. God will do this. Now these false prophets seem to have everything going for them. They were quoting scripture, Deuteronomy 33 And one of them makes horns, puts them in his head, and he says, with these, with this prophetic saying, he was saying, with these you will crush the enemy until they are overthrown. So, going for them, these false prophets, at this incredibly important time in the history of Israel, they had these three things going for them that I can see. They had scripture on their side, so it seems. They were quoting scripture. Just as the evil one quoted scripture to Jesus, they were quoting scripture. They had tradition on their side because their God was Yahweh, who was the God of battles, who would fight for Israel, and God said this. So they had tradition on their side, but they had reason on their side as well. Because Israel and Judah quite easily could overpower the northern enemies by just sheer numbers. So scripture on their side, tradition on their side, and reason on their side. But the most important thing that I can see in 1 Kings 22 when it comes to authority is this. They did not have God on their side. To the human eye they did everything. But to those who were discerning in the spirit they did not have. And there was one person who saw that and that was Micah. He stood in the council of the Lord and he learned that even apparent scriptural authority which these prophets had and apparent tradition and apparent reason wasn't good enough. He had stood there long enough in God's counsel to know that God wanted to judge King Ahab so to save Israel because King Ahab was as evil as you could get and his wife was Jezebel. And we know what we think of when we call someone a Jezebel. And so God delegated a to the prophet Micaiah, who, inspired by the Spirit, stood humbly in the counsel of God, and then he stood boldly in the counsels of men. And that's how God came to bear or to bring his authority into that situation. Not by revealing it through some timeless age or timeless truths, but by delegating his authority to this time an obedient man through his words and he brought judgment and ultimately salvation to Israel and the world. And what more can we say of Jesus? In the past, God spoke to our fathers at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Sustaining all things through his powerful word, his powerful authority. And after he had provided purifications for sins, which many of us celebrate, he sat down at the right hand, the the side of glory, Of the majesty in heaven. The Baptist Union of Scotland. Of which we are a part of. Has this as one of their. um, Declaration of principles. And I'm coming to a conclusion in this. That the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God and Saviour. Is the sole and absolute authority. In all matters pertaining to faith and practice. Jesus is Lord. In all matters of faith and practice. We do not add to it. And by the grace of God, we try not to take away from it. As revealed, not by some blinding light, not by a click of the fingers. As revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And so that the church has liberty, so that we together have liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as His chosen agents to interpret and to administer His laws. So there'll be some things that this Baptist church do that Perth Baptist won't do, that Inverness Baptist won't do. But because we've come together, filled with the Spirit, called out people, anointed, and together reasoned, and together prayed and waited in the Lord, we've came to a conclusion in certain things that are not things that will separate us out of relationship with other churches in the Baptist Union, but it's a distinctive for us, or a foundation for us. So Jesus, who rules from the cross in judgment and in love, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. So you go now and do the job. So we affirm that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we affirm that above all... Above all, you must understand that no prophecy in Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not an end in itself. It is there so that by its proper use, God, the Creator, And the sustainer may be glorified, and his creation may be renewed under the rule of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And here is our part, it's our task to be the people through whom this extraordinary vision comes to pass. So, when it comes to the Bible, it has authority, as the Spirit reveals, and God speaks to us, his chosen people. Not because we are great, but because he is just so gracious and generous and merciful. And we listen for the Spirit through Scripture, and we listen through to this for the Spirit together. And that's a foundational thing of our life together. It's really important, really, really important. And on that, I'm going to pause because I've said a hundreds of things. I'm going to ask you just to pause in silence for a minute or two. My prayer is that something that was of the Lord would stick with you. Hopefully it's not a rebuke for me of speaking out of turn. But if it is, please do that in quietness and with me together. So that I may be built up. So that I may be corrected and put on the right path. And Father, if there's anything of me that is not of you, forgive me. And what is of you, I pray that you'd elevate it in people's minds and hearts. That we would have a hunger to know what you're saying to us so that we'd read this. And would read it in a way in which you could help us, Lord, to do that. To hear you in your word. That you would reign in us. That your kingdom would come. That what your plans are for Petlockery and Aberfeldy and McClure and Kinlachranach and and Kirkmichael and and Dull and Weem, We would be a part of that Father. For your glory.
0: In the name of Christ Jesus the Lord and Saviour of the world. Amen.